How would you like to improve your relationship? How would you like to respond differently in a way that facilitates mutuality and encourages connection? We look forward to addressing these issues together and welcome you to Ask Arlo, a program that seeks to help you identify negative patterns and respond in new ways that can promote a more positive relationship. Now, here is the host of Ask Arlo, Arlene Majorano. Okay, we're on. Uh, hi, everybody. I, uh, my name is Arlene Majorano, and I am with my guest today, Jack Worthy. And we are going to discuss something that, um, it, that is very important, I think, to most couples. Um, and, and Jack is very well-versed in, in uh, being able to share this topic with us. And the topic is, how do you keep sex alive in a long-term relationship? How do you keep the, the energy and the spark and the excitement that you have in the beginning of a relationship uh, how does it continue to be part of your ongoing relationship? So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, Jack, do you have anything you want to add to that? I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Arlene. Okay. Um, so one of the things I said to Jack when we when we just began talking about this is that one of my uh, that one of the things that seems to come up with people is that couples in the beginning have a sense of novelty, excitement. Uh, anticipation. You don't really know if the person that you're dating is going to like you even. You don't know if you're going to sleep together. There's there's a an, an enormous amount of unknowns, anticipation, excitement, and that and that's very um, erotic. It, it it's it keeps it 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 keeps the anticipation of whether we're going to have sex alive. Um, and then as we become more familiar and more comfortable and safer, all the things we really want, uh, more, more safer, more secure. Uh, that, that excitement necessarily, or that novelty necessarily has to go into the background because what comes into the foreground is, is again, security, safety, knowing your partner, knowing that they are going to actually love you and care for you and that you actually are going to be together. And um, one of the things that may affect keeping sex alive in a relationship is that lack of novelty, that lack of excitement. And that's one of the things we want to talk about. And Jack, maybe you can add to that. I think that word novelty is so important and already I'm thinking about it in two different contexts. Okay. So one context is novelty itself is a huge driver of erotic energy. So maybe you've noticed that vacation sex tends to be better than sex at mm. home, or maybe it's a little bit easier to have great vacation sex than it is to have great Thursday night sex. <laughs> the reason is when you're on vacation, you're normally in a novel location. There's a little bit of novelty that's giving you what we call arousal transference. So you're aroused by the novelty of the vacation and you can take that arousal into your sex life. So that's a quick explanation of how novelty drives erotic energy. and when you're starting with a new partner, 
just the newness of the partner is a source of novelty. That's what you were just explaining. We don't know each other. We don't know each other's bodies. There is a will we or won't we energy to it. So that newness of a new partner provides one of the major sources of erotic energy, novelty of a new partner. Then there's this other factor here that you gesture towards, which is when we're falling in love, when we're really pairing off with a new partner, we fall into this state of limerence. We fall into this state of deep infatuation that normally lasts somewhere between six and 18 months. And it's during that state of infatuation, that's when couples are normally having sex multiple times a day, uh, sex several times a week. Everyone who's fallen in love normally has the memory of that period of time and how hot it is and how good the sex is and how exciting it is. All of that sex is actually building the attachment, right? Mm -hmm. All of that sex yeah. is establishing the pair bond. So of course, once the pair bond is established, once the attachment is established, the drive that is creating that level of sexual activity naturally goes down. And that's what all couples experience is once we get out of that initial stage of limerence or infatuation, <clears throat> there's a natural decrease in sexual activity. And so the question you opened us with, how do we keep sex alive is what is a healthy sex life? What is a good sexual dynamic? after that initial six to 18 months and on into years and hopefully decades. Right. And of course that, that varies depending upon each partnership. And some people may want be happier with sex once a week. Some people may want it more frequently. And, you know, each couple has to decide what is their, what are they comfortable with? I love that framing. One of the questions I'm asked most often is how often should couples have sex or what is a normal frequency for having sex? I think your answer is the right answer, which is the answer is however often you want to. And if each of you is feeling met by however much sex you're having, that's great. And don't cross-examine that. Right, right. My other answer to that question is there seems to be some kind of equilibrium that a lot of couples reach at around once a week. We know from the research that couples who have sex more than once a week typically don't have a higher level of sexual satisfaction than couples who have sex weekly. So the most honest, most helpful answer is however much you want. If you want something of a data-driven answer, there seems to be some kind of sweet spot that a lot of couples hit at right around once a week. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's been my experience working with people, but I didn't actually know that it was a, you know, broad, broader, mm -hmm. uh, like average. Yeah. Interesting. You know, the other thing I'm thinking, though, is, and this, this goes, this can be applied to anything that a couple, any decision problem that a couple has to come to a solution about is sometimes people may vary uh, in what they need and what they want. And it's very important to hear the other person, like there's no right amount, just like there's no right answer to the many, many things that couples fight about. And if you really hear the other person and the other person hears you, 
there's some way to make a compromise. I, I say there's always a solution. If you want to find the solution, there's always a solution. But if you want to become polarized, then you can always become polarized. So it might be that some people have to make um, do have a little more sex than they want and a little less sex than they need, you know, but do you find the solution? There's always a solution. Yeah, I think something we notice too, when you talk and work with couples in the domain of sexuality, there's almost always a higher desire partner and there's almost always mm -hmm. a lower desire partner. Mm -hmm. Nobody did anything wrong to create that dynamic. That's just right. how it goes. And I appreciate what you said about if we're in dialogue and in communication and finding the equilibrium that works for us, it's really helpful to get that dialogue out of a moral right versus wrong dimension mm -hmm. and just put it into we're two people who care about each other who are negotiating, right. trying to figure out what works for us. Right. Okay. And there's always a solution. I'm going to say that again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So where, where do you want to take it from here then? Let's see what the next. Um, I, I was interested in, you know, what you said about uh, when we talked that, that the, the first, I think you said two years that time that the, the, the two years now, maybe you said six months to Two years or eighteen months, that that's an that's really a learning, um, a learning, like longitudinal amount of time where it's so important to begin to understand and learn what pleases the other, and you know, and to have that again, it's a mutual mm -hmm. curiosity, it's a mutual um, wish to please the other. And this to be is, and to be pleased, of course. This is an area where I see a lot of long-term sexual relationships go off the right track early. When you're in that initial stage of infatuation, if it's six months, if it's 18 months, if it's two years, you're so excited about having sex with this person that you can tolerate. I'm going to say some incompetent sex, but ideally what a couple is doing in that time is actually learning one another's bodies, actually learning one another's erotic minds, actually learning how do we co-create sexual erotic energy together in a, you know, quick and oversimplified operational definition. You could say that motivation is a relationship between effort and reward. And we feel really, really motivated to do something when the reward is high and the effort is low. And we lose our motivation the higher the effort gets and the lower the reward goes. Well, if in that initial two-year period, you can get very, very competent at having sex together, then you're going to move forward into a reality where good sex feels like not much effort and a ton of reward. However, if you're in that initial two year period and that learning doesn't really happen, you get into a place where sex feels like a lot of effort and not very much reward. 
there's awkwardness, there's not confidence, there's a lot of wrong turns, there's a lot of missteps, and rarely do you get to a really rewarding place. Well, you can see how even a couple that's basically attracted to each other and basically likes each other could end up into a sexually frustrated state because they don't have that learning from that initial phase that taught them how to make sex easy and successful. You know, I was, I was actually thinking as you were talking that again, the same rules apply that might apply to any need that um, you need to express in a relationship. If I have a need and I express it, the other person, my partner can either hear it as a need that they mm -hmm. would like, like, like to fill or a criticism. So if I say, I'd like you to go a little slower, mm -hmm. the person could feel, oh, okay, let mm -hmm. me, how does this feel? Yeah, or, they, uh -huh. or they could say, you're always criticizing. Yes. I never do anything right. So that, that's one thing that I think can go wrong. The other thing is maybe sometimes, and again, it's the same thing that happens to us in all kinds of needs that we have to express. Mm -hmm. I might I might have learned that I'm not allowed to say what I need, mm -hmm. um, that I should keep quiet, that I shouldn't complain. And if I've learned that, then I may not be be free to say what I want. So those two things could, you know, I, there may be other dynamics, but I think those two dynamics could easily get in the way of having, you know, a free, open, curious mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, exploration, right? Mm -hmm. I always think of the comparison between cooking and eating and sex because they're two things I'm very enthusiastic about. <laughs> but I think about cooking for someone and I'm totally open to feedback on my cooking, but I want there to be an assumption of good faith and a mutual dialogue about what we're trying to do here is make this even better. Uh, that's very different than cooking for somebody and feeling criticized and not appreciated. There, that's funny. You know, can yeah. I just share a funny thing? Please, I'd like, love that. Because I'm Italian and cooking is like practically a religion. Mm -hmm. And I, you just reminded me of when my grandmother used to cook and sh she would say, so do you think it needs a little more salt? Huh? Mm -hmm. Do you think it needs a little color, a little red? And she uh -huh. would she would ask everybody, um, she would say what she thought, and then she would ask everybody, so we could all opine about mm -hmm. what would make it taste better. <laughs> and it was a creative, mutually creative endeavor that we all, and it was fun. I don't know. We all were part of it. Yeah. When you, I was going to say, when you describe that, that sounds like an experience that would actually feel fun and warm and connecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were all part of it. Mm -hmm. And it was, it wasn't just taste. It was did it need a little green, a little mm -hmm. parsley, Did it need mm -hmm. a little pepper, Mul red? <laughs> multi-sensory, as we say. Multi-sensory, multi for sure. <laughs> One of the skills that I enjoy teaching couples is how to give sexual feedback. Mm -hmm. Because that's part of how we co-create a sexual experience. And if you don't know how to ask for what you want in a confident way, that's a problem. But mm -hmm. also you've got to recognize that you're co-creating an experience and you want all of your moves to take you towards creating more erotic energy. And there's a huge difference between saying slow down 
versus saying it would be so hot if you slowed down a little bit. (laughs) And then when the person slows down saying, oh my God, that feels so good. The communication (laughs) serves the safe function, but the second one, it sets up a dynamic where you're increasing the erotic energy of the sexual experience. Mm -hmm. And it's very subtle, right? It uh, sure is, yeah. Mm -hmm. To get that right and to also then be attuned to what might make one person be more hypersensitive than mm-hmm. another to a comment than another person. It, it's not, it, it, you know, one person might not care. <laughs> yeah. Another person might feel hypersensitive. So you want to know what your partner's sensitivity is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And learning those sensitivities, that's hopefully something we come away from in that initial experience of infatuation and something we become more and more sophisticated in, in years or decades together. But oftentimes, if you're in a relationship where, like I say, you basically like each other, you're fond of each other, you're attracted to each other, but the sexual dynamic doesn't seem to work, oftentimes you don't know those particular sensitivities about your partner. Mm-hmm. Would you say that it's always possible to find uh, a way to meet each other's needs? Or are there some people who maybe just I have such different sexual needs that they're not going to find a way to connect? That is such a great question. And I'm not entirely sure that I feel confident about my answer. I will tell you what my answer is. Go ahead. (laughs) My answer is some people are sexually incompatible to a point that if sex is very important to one or both partners, it's probably a deal breaker for the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's like a good faith. Everybody's trying. It's just, you know, like trying to go, I'm going to use a food metaphor again. It's like trying to go out to dinner with somebody where you don't particularly agree on what makes for good cuisine. Mm -hmm. You know, if he loves a taco truck and his partner (laughs) loves fine dining, you know, you can each be flexible from time to time. But I think for the most part, you're going to end up in a dynamic where you're both feeling really frustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that might be a very sad moment to have to choose between like a real emotional connection that people feel and a sexual making sex a priority. And maybe some people might make the connection a priority, but it's an important thing to know that that, that could be a choice. It's really, really interesting too, Arlene, and something that I found in my practice, and I wonder if you find something similar, people have a hard time admitting that that sexual dynamic is something that's very important to them and something that they don't want to compromise on. Mm -hmm. And something I hear repeatedly from patients is when I reflect back to them, it seems like sex is important to you. It seems like the sex being good is important to you. They feel shallow or superficial for sex being a priority rather than seeing sex as, you know, one of the fundamental drives of being human, one of the primary pleasures you get as like the basic package of being alive. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say more that I feel people can say it's important, but then it's hard to prioritize sex mm-hmm. over the love relationship and say, mm-hmm. okay, well, we can't be together um, because the sex is more important to me. Mm-hmm. It's hard to actually prioritize yeah. the sex and mm-hmm. uh, sexual pleasure 
over somebody you have a good emotional connection with. Right. And, you know, I guess that is a choice people have to make and we can help people hopefully make the choice that is really important for them. Yeah. Life is full of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a really yeah. interesting model of sexual compatibility from a sex therapist named Donald Mosher. And he identified three dimensions of sexual connection. They're called role enactment, erotic trance, and partner engagement. And in Mosher's model, each of us has one of these three sexual styles. So in role enactment, yeah, in role enactment, you're not doing role play but it's more like you're fulfilling a certain kind of fantasy. So like if you've ever like come in the door and like thrown the dishes off the dining table and gotten rowdy, you're doing role enactment. You're kind of drawing erotic energy by being each in a certain role. Then erotic trance is kind of an altered state of consciousness. It's really being connected to the sensory experience of sex. So Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, I, I don't want to say sex as yoga because you're not doing acrobatics necessarily, but it's more of sex as being in your body, closing your eyes, being in the sensations. And then finally, in partner engagement, that's about the eye thou. That's about your face to face. You're making eye contact. It's you and me in this moment. None of these is more legitimate than another. But when you have these frames, you can notice when you're working with couples, oh, she's into role enactment and he likes partner engagement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She wants him to pick her up and throw her on the bed. And he's uh, touching her cheek very, very softly as initiation. This is an example of two really good faith people who are maybe physically attracted to each other, but the way they create erotic energy is very different at the default setting. Interesting. I did. So, but that feels to me like a thing that can be negotiated. So this is, I think- As long as you know the separate styles, right? mm -hmm. We could take turns or we could, you know- I think that's spot on. I think when you start to negotiate this kind of thing, you're looking at, well, do you both like erotic trance? Can you both move towards that kind of sexual style? You know, what's it like for you to be in role enactment with her? What's it like for you to be in partner engagement Mm -hmm. with him? Can you each learn to sing in one another's keys, if you will? I think I do come down to, if you have somebody who's very deep into a role enactment style versus somebody who's very deep into partner engagement, and the flexibility just doesn't feel interesting or fun, well, that would be the example of a situation where you might have a deal breaker. Right. It it also, though, does seem to me that each person could teach something to the other Mm -hmm. and and, uh, you can expand your... Mm -hmm. Well, there's no question that the world is bigger the more flexible you are. (laughs) I guess, but it's interesting. I had not heard of those three Mm -hmm. uh, styles. It's my understanding that that paper never really made a splash. It was Mm -hmm. never really a highly cited paper. And I can't remember where I learned this frame, if it was in graduate school or after. But I remember after I learned that frame, 
it's become one of the frames that I share most often with individual patients and with couples. And it's something they almost always Mm -hmm. identify with and something they find incredibly useful. There can be an instant aha moment of, oh, this is how we're missing each other, or, oh, this is what's going wrong. Cool, okay, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we talk about how though you make the time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the other thing I think we, when, when you're, um, that I hear a lot with people is, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, it's there's no spontaneity if we agree mm-hmm. to have sex every Saturday at, or yeah. every Sunday morning. And I say, hey, come on. When you were first going out, <laughs> mm-hmm. you didn't live together and you were going out, like, say, every Friday night or Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And you were thinking, oh, we're going out Friday night. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll have sex after, after we have dinner. And it was very time bound and structured and, um, but it was exciting. And it could have been every Friday night or every Saturday night we went out to dinner, mm-hmm. but went, but in a, in a long-term relationship and mostly, you know, I don't know, you can talk about this, but there may be people who can be um, completely spontaneous and not have a structure, but my experience is people work full-time, mm-hmm. often they have children <laughs> and there aren't that many hours in the day that are left Mm-hmm. So, so it is important to have, like, I call it a sacred time mm. to, to really have a time that you set aside. That's a sacred time and um, that you're committed to just keeping, keeping sacred and, and that it's not necessarily, it doesn't just like the, the time on Friday night, when you first started to go out and you knew you, it was a, it was a structured time. It, it doesn't have to and shouldn't really take that um, that that tone of, oh, it's just an assignment and, you know, we have to do it. That's, but it can, it's a very fine line, right? Mm-hmm. Fine line. <laughs> is it so, a sacred space or is it a, a responsibility and an assignment? Very fine line. I think you notice something important, which is something that is often missed early on in relationships we are very deliberate and intentional about sex, but we don't frame it as being deliberate and intentional about sex. What I mean is, if you're in an early sexual relationship with somebody and you know you're going on a date, then you are groomed. Right, right, right. You are showered. Um, If he's coming back to your place, your place is clean. (laughs) Um, When you're at dinner, you mind how much you eat, you mind how much you drink. You are doing all of these deliberate and intentional things to make space for sex. And what happens as we get comfortable with each other is, you know, maybe we go a couple days without showering. You know, maybe we don't pay as much attention to all of our hygiene as we normally do. We don't keep the place picked up like we once did. We go out for dinner at the end of a work week and we're stressed and we have maybe a few too many drinks. Maybe we overeat a little bit. Nobody feels sexy after that. Nobody feels Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, no, I really want to be touched after I just gorged on pasta. So the first distinction I make is 
let yourself think in terms of making space rather than necessarily in terms of making a sex date. I have no problem with the sex date, but even before that, think in terms of how do I make space for a sexual encounter? How do I need to prepare my body? How do I need to prepare my mind? How do I need to prepare the space where we would have sex so it's free of distractions? Then another frame I would give you, and I recommend this especially for couples who have children. Think in terms of sexual and physical encounters happening on a spectrum. So even if you've gotten to say Saturday night and you were trying to make space to have sex and you just feel out of energy once the kids are in bed, you can just get in bed together and start by touching. And if that feels good, you can kiss. And if kissing feels good, you can touch each other a little bit more. Don't feel like you're a failure if you get into bed and start and you don't really have the energy to see all the way through to sex. Let yourself have, you know what? Like we kissed and we cuddled and that felt good and we went to sleep. Right, right. You'll be surprised how many nights that escalates into a more intense experience. But if you just start with the projection of, oh, I'm too tired, I won't be able to have sex, you're probably foreclosing on a lot of nights when you could have gotten there. Right, that's really important. It's also important if there's ever um, an erectile problem and the pressure to have sex negates the fun mm-hmm. <laughs> and that the same thing works in that instance so don't 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 you're just gonna just make the agreement that you'll just touch that you'll just um you know caress love each other and take the pressure off because the important thing is the loving erotic sensual connection and then once the pressure is off probably everything else will fall into place. It's really amazing how often just removing that pressure is an effective treatment for erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And if you can get your head around, I'm not trying to get an erection. I'm just lying in bed with my boyfriend and we're kissing each other and whatever happens, happens. Right, right. Why does it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. Even in yeah. orgasm, why does mm-hmm. it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very much the same thing with resistance or difficulty with orgasm. Uh, I always start with the counsel of stop trying to have an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Stop Just let yourself pressure on. Mm-hmm. Let yourself feel good. Let yourself feel free in the moment and. If the energy builds that way, absolutely follow it. But if it doesn't, just concentrate on what's feeling good. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, it's funny though. There are these basic principles that we probably should all live by. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is to, for me anyway, it's to focus on the positive. It's to mm-hmm. focus on what's possible um, and not to focus on what's missing and what mm-hmm. I don't have. So to focus on what, what I do have, what's possible, um, the glass is half full, rather mm-hmm. than focus on what's missing, what I don't have, the glass is half empty. So again, it's the same principle that allows us to have an enriching life in general that you're talking about applying to a sexual encounter. 
this is another way in which just bathing one another in positive reinforcement mm -hmm. is so helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because if you finish a sexual encounter and you're upset because somebody didn't get an erection or you're upset because somebody wasn't able to climax and that's what you focus on, well, think about how that manipulates the effort reward relationship. You're like, oh, I just made myself vulnerable towards a frustrating experience. But if you end an encounter by just giving the feedback, it felt so good to be naked and quiet with you for 30 minutes. What a wonderful alternative to the rest of my week or, you know, kissing you totally cleared my mind. Thank you for that time. Then you're giving, then you're creating a rewarding experience that people are more willing to come back to. Right. Right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So when we set aside that time, the important thing, again, is to set it aside without pressure. Mm -hmm. And, and like you're saying, to make it special, to make it, yeah. I say sacred, but sacred's a great word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it would mean you could, for different people, it might mean candles. It might yeah. mean, you know, whatever it means. It could mean a drink. It could mean uh, different clothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it could mean a drink. It could mean lingerie. It could mean music, whatever it is that helps you step into that space. I am not an expert <laughs> on this, so I don't want to say too much. But it's my understanding that in the autonomics nervous system, you have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And to get to a place of sexual arousal, you have to move out of the sympathetic nervous system, which is all about responding to stress, and move into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is all about resting, relaxing, repairing. Oh, interesting. So sometimes I tell couples the first step of any sexual episode is relaxation. The first step of any sexual episode is to take a breath, take up some space, really relax and just kind of be in the moment. And that's what makes space for arousal. Uh, okay, that makes sense to actually put the stress of daily life <clears throat> on on like literally on a table yes. or in the other room. Mm -hmm. And the other room is even better. Right. I do feel conspicuous because I'm talking so much about giving positive reinforcement. It makes me want to mention how to give actual feedback to your partner if you need mm -hmm. to. And the best advice I ever received on this was if you have to give critical feedback, give it uh, away from sexy time. Yeah, so yeah. if you're going to give that feedback, do it when the two of you are out for a drink together or do it when you're having your morning coffee together. And it's always important to frame it as this is something we're trying. It's not really working for me. I'll tell you what does work for me. And yeah. that way that uh, critical feedback isn't necessarily taking away from the erotic energy of a particular sexual episode. You know, it's interesting because again, as you say that, that's something I would say about almost any difficulty that a couple has if if um like if i feel you're i don't like the way you look at me <laughs> and, and, and and i say oh there you go again with that look mm -hmm. uh, if i say if i say that in the moment that mm -hmm. we're we're having a, a charged encounter this yeah. has nothing to do with sex you'll say to me you know you're always critical or whatever mm -hmm. and we'll start to have mm -hmm. a fight but it, i always tell people you talk about it when you're calm, when yes. you're not, 
when your amygdala is mm -hmm. in, and again, I'm not a brain surgeon either, right. but I think the amygdala is the part that has to fight mm -hmm. and defend. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're going to do that, you have to, again, same rules apply. You have mm -hmm. to talk about these things. Yes. I feel, I feel criticized when, when, or I feel disappointed when you don't clean the dishes, whatever. Mm -hmm. It can't, it can't be you're most effective when there are no dishes <laughs> and, and, and you're talking about it as a concept mm -hmm. and the other person can hear it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you're saying the same thing about, you know, how do we talk about our sexual needs um, or, or, you know, desires or preferences it, better to do it when, or you create the ground. So yeah. And I, I hear you gesturing towards a reality, Arlene, that I agree with really strongly, whether you're talking about couple dynamics or a sexual dynamic, which is have the conversation with the assumption that this is a win-win, mm -hmm. that you and I are a team and we're trying to get to the same place together. Right. That's really different than having the conversation as a zero sum. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. This is a game of moral advantage, and I'm trying to prove that I'm more in the right than you are. Right, right. It's funny because there, there's a the Imago uh, founder of Imago, Harville Hendricks. He has a famous phrase: "Will you rather be right or be in a relationship?" Mm. So, yeah. So whether it's we're talking about our sexual needs or we're talking about anything, mm -hmm. um, it's so easy to be triggered. And to feel like I have to be right, I'm mm -hmm. right. You have to hear my point of view, yes. as opposed to I have to hear yours and you have to hear mine. Mm -hmm. And if we mutually hear each other through the grace of um, generosity, then mm -hmm. we can go someplace. Um, I think yeah. we're I think we're also wandering into another truth that I think is really important. Uh, there's a great book I would recommend for everybody called Magnificent Sex, and the structure of the book is two sex researchers having interviewed a lot of folks who self-report having very satisfying sex lives and then reverse engineering from there, what are you doing to create these excellent sex lives? But when they look at what these individuals and couples do to create great sex, one of the features you see is if it's a couple in a monogamous relationship, there's no residue or distraction between the two of them when they're going to bed. So there's no unfinished fight. Oh, there's okay. no unspoken conflict. There's no unaired resentment. So when you actually spend time together sexually, there's nothing in the way of the two of you being present with each other and wanting to be present with each other. That's a really different experience than trying to have sex with somebody you're actively resenting because they're not <laughs> an engaged enough parent or trying to have sex with somebody you're actively resenting because they never pick up their towels off the floor. Right, right. Well, do you think it's possible to put those things aside and allow yourself to enter into the sexual experience, even if you might be angry about the towels? That's an interesting question. I think it would be. So I think it <laughs> I think it depends on how horny you are and how good your partner is at sex. <laughs> if you're really horny and your partner knows how to have sex, you can probably put that aside. 
Uh-huh. Or, also, or it, it could also be depends. one of those agreements that you <laughs> yeah. talked about. It can be an agreement. It also depends on how irritated you are by the towels. Right, right. <laughs> the very important towels that are on the floor. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty orderly myself. So. Which, of course, is never really about the towels, but mm-hmm. about much deeper needs to be seen and heard mm-hmm. and paid attention to. So it's interesting. So, a, oh, go ahead, Arlie. No, I was just going to ask you what what other, what else do you think is important to focus on? I think a sense of play is so helpful. All mammals play. All mammals enter this state where, if you were looking at like lion cubs or wolf pups wrestling, they're suspending who's going to be higher in the dominance hierarchy of the pack. Mm -hmm. And they're just being present with each other and experimenting in a no stakes environment. Right, right. It's very different than actual aggression aimed at each other. It's play aggression. Mm. I think a spirit of play where nobody's dignity or worth is on the line. We're just co-creating this thing together and following fun when it happens is absolutely the right attitude to bring to sex. And many couples and individuals I've talked with, when we start to reverse engineer their sexual experiences, everything is always so high stakes. Everything is always, it's always on the line. It has to be good. That's the opposite of an attitude of play where everything's up for grabs. We're here to have fun. We're here to experiment. It's interesting because probably everybody has seen this, but it's probably we could all do like one minute of meditation on this before any Mm -hmm. sexual act. Like we've probably all been to the zoo and seen the baboons Mm -hmm. and the mother and the father stay with the little babies Mm -hmm. and all over the, all over the, the um, enclosure are the, teenage baboons (laughs) who are jumping and running and playing Uh and smacking each other too sometimes and but having unbelievable joyful fun so yes you say that I think of them and I'm immediately uh, (laughs) in that state of mind of uh, how I have always been when I ever go to the zoo and see them they're they're just unbelievably free and Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go immediately to the right state of mind, right? Yeah, yeah, Where they're yeah. just so free and energetic. And of course, there's something really important that happens with play in humans in early childhood is we're learning how aggressive we can be before our playmate becomes overwhelmed or scared mm-hmm. or hurt. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. that's part of how we hone our empathy is to notice how my actions are affecting this person Well, what could be more important in sex than that kind of attunement where Mm -hmm. you're noticing when does my aggression become overwhelming? When does it become a little bit scary or out of key? And noticing how is what I'm doing affecting the person I'm with? Are they enjoying themselves more or are they enjoying themselves less? Right, right. It's very interesting because the baboons know. Yeah. (laughs) They really do. But yeah, but that's an important, again, it's it's about being tuned, attuned to the attuned. other, right? Mm-hmm. That's 
goes back to the point you keep making, Arlene, which is so many of these skills are just good relationship and couple skills, mm-hmm. and you can bring them profitably into the domain of sex. Right, right. Being attuned to the other and attuned mm-hmm. to yourself and going back and forth between those two, mm-hmm. um, you know, ways of orienting. And if each person does it, then then there's a, a dynamic that's gonna be mm-hmm. uh, very fruitful, right? I think another thing I encourage couples to think, and I don't want to take credit for this idea being my own, but I can't remember where I got it, is you can think of and see sex as a hobby or a leisure activity like any other. And that means it's something you can put time into to get better. And you can discern for yourself what sort of enjoyment you want to get out of it. So um, I enjoy cycling as a hobby. I am a vanilla cyclist. I am not interested in doing anything terribly interesting or complex. I just love entering a flow state on a bicycle while listening to a podcast. Another one of my hobbies is cooking. I'm very interested in challenging myself as a cook, seeing how complex I can do something, trying things I've never tried before. In each of those pursuits, I just followed my own energy and interest to really maximize how much I enjoy it. You can do the same thing with sex. Yeah. What is it you find interesting about it? What is it you enjoy about it? Is this something you want to put time and effort into to get fancy with it? Or are kind of like the vanilla standards, all that you really need to keep you interested? It's a really subjective personal question. You know what, though? Unless somebody is very lucky, and this is really a very, I think, important thing now that you're saying that, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about this. Um, it, we've all grown up, depending upon religion, mm-hmm. family, uh, family of origin, attitudes mm-hmm. about sex. I'm um, not all, I should say, there may be some people who've pr- been brought up with no judgment, complete mm-hmm. freedom. Um, but a lot of people have been brought up with shame, with mm-hmm. restrictions, mm-hmm. with concept of sin yes um and so that must be part of so many people's um there must be a barrier to so many people being able to do what you're talking about which is just get on your bike just play tennis whatever yes. mm-hmm. um it's not it's all those those voices are in there and, yeah uh, you and i both know as gestaltists Whenever you notice somebody in a frame that is not helpful, mm-hmm. you can help them import a frame that would be more helpful. Right, right. Yeah. So can you tap into what are you like when you're riding your bike? What's your energy like? All right. Can you imagine bringing that energy to your sexual self? And if there's an interruption there, well, then that's an opportunity for therapeutic work. Right. What's the interruption? Mm-hmm. What's the voice telling you that's mm-hmm. interrupting and... I'll tell you, Arlene, I came into my interest in uh, sex and psychotherapy because at my graduate school, the head of our program is a uh, certified sex therapist, and he taught a week-long sex therapy intensive out in the mountains of Taos, New Mexico, and he's a brilliant therapist, and he speaks with a very perceptible East Texas accent. Uh And so when he started giving the introductory lectures and he was talking about very graphic things, 
it was jarring for me as a Texas boy to hear that accent talk about graphic things. <laughs> I remember in particular, he said something to the effect of, well, and the problem was he was coming too fast. And I thought, <laughs> where was he going? What does he mean? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, oh, that's what he means. But there was something so normalizing for me to hear that accent talk yeah. about graphic material. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, that's normal then, I guess. That's and where you're from, Texas? I am, yes. So, so you heard somebody with an accent you were familiar with Absolutely. Talk, talking Absolutely. in a free and open way. It's one of the reasons that when I'm going to start talking to a couple about sex, I give the preamble. I have a very graphic and direct way of talking about sex. If I run a red light, let me know. But otherwise, I'm just going to be open and direct. And most of the people I've worked with have found that to be so healing and free. Just, we're going to talk about this like a normal, healthy thing in here without any kind of retroflective energy. So I would have to find a priest or a nun who could do that. <laughs> yeah, good, uh -oh. good luck with that, Arlene. Uh -oh. yeah. <laughs> I could be in trouble. <laughs> That's funny. But again, to know those voices and mm -hmm. to, we call them in control therapy, we call them retroflections, mm -hmm. to be aware of them and to yes. work on letting them go um, and appreciating that they were, you know, based in inhibitions that are not, that we're not, that we don't need to uh, accept anymore. Yes. We can let them go. <laughs> I read Helen Fisher, the evolutionary anthropologist. I read her book, Anatomy of Love, which I recommend. And she talks about going back to humans as even hunter-gatherers. All groups of humans try in some way to regulate sex. So there's, there's nothing particularly broken about you or your culture of origin or your family of origin. If you have counterproductive ideas around sex, hierarchies trying to regulate who can have sex with whom and how often is as old as being human. But are you saying even with animals? Uh, no, it, I'm, oh, oh. I'm just uh, limiting, I'm limiting us to humans right now. Oh, oh, all humans do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. all, all cultures. It's so interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's no culture that exists that hasn't found some way to make yeah. a- No a culture that exists that didn't try to make some rules. Why do you think? <laughs> I think because sexual jealousy is such a powerful and destructive force mm. and access to the most conventionally desirable high status mates. These two features are such sources of destruction and fighting and conflict a natural part of trying to hold a group together is trying to regulate that conflict. I see. That's interesting. I guess that's true. That that makes sense. Yeah. But now that you say it, I, I mean, I, I don't know one culture that has doesn't have rules, religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, a big part of almost every religion is finding a way to regulate yes. and monitor. Yeah. It's crazy, yeah. <laughs> but true. <laughs> Uh, so before we end is there anything else you want to say because we're gonna he just gave us a little heads up that we're ending in four minutes um, I think 
there's a really interesting exercise and we can end on this exercise. Okay. And the exercise is called peak erotic experiences. Okay. And you can look into your past and see if you can identify two or three of your absolutely favorite sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. Notice what was going on. What were the factors? What was the setting? What are your sense memories? What were the interpersonal dynamics? What kinds of touch were involved? And really see if you can start to collate. When I have really enjoyed sex the most, mm -hmm. what were the features that were present? And then that's a yeah. dialogue you can have with your partner. Like when I right. enjoyed sex the most, this is what was present. It can start to give you a map of your sexuality, but it's experiential, right? It's based right, on right. your actual experience of enjoying sex and not on what you think you should enjoy. Right, right. And if you can mutually share that again mm -hmm. um, with openness and curiosity, then you're off to a good start. Yeah, Absolutely, that's really... yes. Okay. Peak erotic experience. I like that. Um, so what else? I mean, I, I just want to go back maybe before we end to the importance of having a sacred space, of setting that aside, of seeing that as a positive, um, like optimistic space and not a restricted yeah. uh, mandatory space or whatever, but, but a a space that where a commitment to each other is part of that space and exists mm -hmm. in that space. And, um, and it's, again, it's a positive, optimistic, um, exciting thing, as opposed to a mandatory restricted thing, well, one or the other. Let's bring back in that word play. It's a space, mm -hmm. it's a sacred space where you can go to play not necessarily a space where you're going to go and be successful or unsuccessful. Right, right. Well, where you have to do something mm -hmm. or, you know, the, yeah, we're required. <laughs> right. So play like the baboons. Like Just like the baboons. <laughs> All right. Um, I think he's telling us 30 seconds. So maybe we can take this time to say, I'll say, take this time to say, thank you so much for being part of this experience with me. And I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the fun we had. I appreciate the invitation. I love to talk about sex. Thank you for tuning in to Ask Arlo. Arlene Majorano has another episode of the podcast coming soon. So keep checking back on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And be sure to visit askarlo.com to ask questions and to find out more about the show. Until our next show, keep finding new ways to renew the relationships in your life.